Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn from the founder of one of the biggest product TV shows in North America on what it really takes to license your product the way the professionals do it. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, onto the show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Kevin Mako. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Tom Gray to the show. Tom is the founder and executive producer of the Make 48 TV show, a show where contestants have 48 hours to come up with an invention idea, build a prototype, and then showcase it to the judges. The show is on PBS, Amazon Prime, and many other networks all around the world. Tom is also the president of the Handy Camel, a company that distributes client products all over the world. Simply put, he is one of the big names in the North American product startup space. Today, Tom is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can license their inventions and products and get into the market. How licensing is actually done properly and professionally to get into the distributors, retailers, or big product brands with your product. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show. Kevin, good to see you, my friend. It's been yeah, a while. likewise. Yeah, yeah where are you out of right now? Uh, Kansas City, Missouri, hometown. I actually down at the uh, co working space at the office today. You know, I usually do all my meetings back at the house at the farm. Uh, but I knew this was an important call with you on the podcast. So I wanted to make <laughs> sure I had uh, the best internet and speaker I could find. Well, I very much appreciate it. It looks like you're actually in some sort of a recording studio. I can see some of the, uh, some of the, um, I guess, padding there for the soundproofing. Yeah, we have a, we have a green screen. Uh, of course, I've got the, the brick background now, which is all natural. But um, yeah, they have a nice, uh, here at the office, they have a nice uh, community um, filming podcast recording room for special meetings. So I make sure I, I snapped it up. Very nice. Very nice. So it's been a while. Um, we've, uh, you know, we've, we've done a few things. I, I've actually known Tom uh, for many years um, through the Make 48 uh, TV show. I've had the pleasure of uh, uh, being on set a couple of times, watching all the craziness unfold. Um, why don't you give everyone just a quick, uh, quick background um, of, uh, of Make 48? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a concept that was created here in Kansas City. Uh, myself, Rich, Kurt, and Bob uh, co-founded it, and we wanted to bring teams together from different backgrounds and skill levels, and give them a chance to invent a physical product. Uh, doesn't have to be working, but uh, to build a physical prototype all in forty eight hours. But you got the luxury of a state of the art makerspace that has the equipment from three D printers to CNCs and everything in between, uh, and tool techs. So we rely heavily on experts to do CAD design, 3D printing, welding. And that way, the teams just have to collaborate. And that's what it's all about. And um, yeah, we know that the whole world can't build everything themselves. Then that will never happen. And certain people have skills. And we're trying to just join those two people together to make that product. And now, I mean, it's, it's, it's blown up. Um, Amazon, PBS, uh, you know, tell me, tell me about that. Where, where, where can people watch the show? Yeah. Make forty eight. You're on what? Well, which season? I know you're now getting into recorded. Season four is recorded. You're going to season five coming up. 
Yeah, so season four has just come out on PBS nationwide. Uh, we're now in uh, 95% of American homes, which is a, a really good result for, for a TV concept. For those that don't know PBS, there's 300 stations around the country and they all must vote yes, no, maybe to play TV series. So to get a penetration of 95, 96% on average is really good for us. Uh, it's also on Amazon Prime. Um, but yeah, we're obviously planning now for the future and, and season five. You know, that it, it's been a blast to be on the show as well. More on the, you know, on the tool tech side. Um, you know, I know uh, one of our lead designers, Tim Ace, uh, had a lot of fun doing the CAD work, working with the different teams, getting these products figured out, designed all within 48 hours. And then, you know, the big pitch at the end, uh, that which, uh, you know, I had the, uh, that was a lot of fun actually uh, doing the keynote uh, to last season's. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, it was an it was an absolute blast. The energy was there was all kinds of crazy um, sponsors there as well. Uh, Stanley Black and Decker, some others. Why don't you talk about some of the sponsors that were on there too? Because that was that was very exciting to meet some of the YouTube stars in the in the product space and all that while I was there. Yeah, we had uh, season four. We had uh, Jimmy DeResta. You know, he's the godfather of making and real talented guy. But he's old school making. You know, he does digital fabrication, but he's he's really good at welding and and woodworking. We, uh, we gave him the co-hosting position along with Zyla Foxland, and uh, they were awesome together. Yeah, but, they were. You know, they were a blast. The benefit with Make 48, it's 100% real, and it's not scripted. And everyone comes together to help, including major corporations. You know, we have engineers engineers, sorry, and, uh, and tool techs coming from big brands to all pitch in. And we have mentors that have to help with, you know, marketing and stuff like that. So the teams have access to these great minds to make sure that their product and their pitch at the end is, is up to standard, you know, and give them a good chance of winning. So. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, all this comes back, you know, let, let's rewind a little bit back in time here. Um, talk about your experience in the product sales and distribution, because that's what we're going to get into on this episode, really looking at the, the, the real way of getting products onto the shelf through the license vertical uh, licensing, which I know you had a lot of, uh, you know, history on, uh, both in Australia and then in North America. Um, give us a quick run, uh, run through of your background there. Yeah, so before Make 48, I was very much heavily in the uh, product world. I would license inventions uh, from inventors at an early stage. I would then um, manufacture them, warehouse, distribution, marketing, the whole lot, and supply directly to, to retail. Uh, I started doing that in, in Australia. Uh, I supplied uh, Bunnings, which is equivalent to the Home Depot of Australia, which is a, a big brand down there. And I was in the roofing and guttering industry. So I, I had you know shelf space in that section. I started off with one product. I ended up selling that company with, with I think, nine products on the shelf. Once you have success, you often can see grow on that, you know, with the buyer has trust in you. And if you can perform and, and, and have good sell-through, they will listen to you for new products. So I heavily relied on new inventors to bring me new innovation. Um, you know, I'm not directly an inventor myself, but I know the tricks and the tips that help get the, the product to the end result. Uh, but, you know, fast forward, we came to America. I married my sweetheart here and, um, and that's why I'm, I'm here. I've been here for 13 <laughs> years and I did the same thing. You know, I, I started to supply uh, QVC with innovation. We started with the handy camel bag clip, which was a cool gardening product a uh, bag clip that reseals big bags is what it was invented to do. Uh, but, and, and as we grew, you know, and, and, you know, things did, things definitely did, did get tougher, you know, with retail and with Amazon. Uh, Amazon's a great thing and is, is really starting a new uh, vertical of entrepreneurs for sure. Um, 
but to really get good results and sell lots of something is has just got harder and harder because there's just so many people now doing it. So, you know, licensing is becoming still is becoming a great avenue, but you got to make sure you take those right steps to, to get success. So let, let those right steps, I mean, let, let's talk about it today. I mean, Tom, you're somebody who's known by everybody in the industry. You're, you're one of the big players in, in the product space now, especially with Make 48 TV show. And then of course, with Handy Camel before. So one of the big questions that I know many of our clients ask when they're designing and developing their products, what is the end game? And how does licensing play into it? Now, licensing is one of many, obviously many channels in which you can choose to sell or distribute or wholesale your product. Um, so it's a very, very interesting one. Uh, let's start from the beginning. What, what do you, what, what do you need to do to get into the licensing game with your product invention? Yeah, this is one that uh, a lot of people have different opinions. Um, but if you know the industry and you've actually been involved in it for a while, you must have a working prototype. If you don't have a working prototype, you will not be taken seriously for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, companies are getting pitched products every day. And if people have a real life prototype, they're going to look at that person first. They're not interested in ideas. They have no care about an idea. They also need to see some type of protection as in a patent pending phase. A utility patent is great if you've lasted that long to to secure that. Um, But you need some type of protection. And the reason that makes a huge difference if you don't have protection and and yourself or even the person you're trying to pitch your product to walks into, say, a, a Walmart or a Home Depot and they ask the question, it's part of the due diligence of a big retailer is we must see what you've got protected in this product. And if you say, look, I don't have any protection at all, well, that's it. The com- this conversation stops right there. And the reason is anyone launching a product in a big retailer, especially the retailer, is trying to get big success. They're not going to want to sell 10,000 10, items and call it a day. They need to make sure they can sell a million items. You know, it's, a, it's going to be a big play to get that shelf space. If you cannot protect that product, that means their competitor can freely walk in and copy it 100%. So success is a great thing on one hand, but it also opens up a big opportunity for a lot of people to infringe and take it over. So you must have some type of protection, no matter what, on a product. Great. Okay, so uh, first things first. Uh, focus on the product. Then you've got to look at filing at least some degree, you know, whatever you can afford or whatever your time permits, at least some degree of protection to get yep. to, to get going, right? Even if it's starting with a provisional patent, then ideally yep. moving at some point to a utility patent, maybe yep. a design patent, whatever, but either way, uh, some level of protection. Yeah, um, you got to have that. No, that, that's great. Uh, then where do we go from there? From there you go, uh, and this is probably the, you know the way, most important thing is educating the person you're pitching it to uh, that it works and and how it works, and doing it in a really uh, simple way, and that's usually a one minute uh, one minute pitch video. You know, uh, someone doesn't one, want to one see minute one minute pitch video to explain it because if you can't explain it in one minute, how is that retailer going to sell it to their consumer? Right. That, that, this is the true elevator pitch, right? One minute. Yeah, one minute. Clear, concise, to the point. Yeah, one minute. And that um, that is really important because a buyer will listen for one minute when you think about it. They'll open up an email and they'll watch a pitch video for one minute. If it's five, six, seven minutes long and the first three minutes are you just talking about yourself, you've already lost the buyer. They just want to see the product work and straight away they're going to say yes or no. So you yeah, need that. 
I love that you mentioned that because one of the things that I get asked all the time is, you know, what, what makes a, what makes a, a great product? And I say, you know what, if you can't explain it quickly, and if it's not a simple solution to a problem, then you've already lost your audience before you've even started. It's very difficult, not only in the design and engineering to make something that's so overly complicated that it, you know, it takes a novel to understand what its purpose is, then how are you ever going to sell that on the back end, right? So that's really interesting. You mentioned the one-minute video. That's the first time I've heard that, but uh, it, it, uh, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Clear, concise, to the point. Let them come back to ask further clarifying questions that they want after you being able to explain that. And you should. You know, 60 seconds is enough. 60 yeah. seconds, you should be able to bang out exactly what your product does, especially if you're pairing it with a prototype or with videos or explainers of how that thing works. And the, the benefit there too, Kevin, is again... If you're pitching it to a big corporation, which most people do, you know, they try to find the right corporation for their industry, right? That corporation sometimes will see a thousand different inventions a year. So again, their time is really precious and they don't want to see, you know, a fluffy video of, of, of crap and other things. They just want to get to the point <laughs> and demo. Now that's just, don't forget, that's just to the, to the, to the person making the decision. If that product goes all the way to market, it's going to sit on a shelf. There is no video on the shelf. So again, if you can't explain it in one minute, you're going to have a really hard time trying to explain it when it sits in a box. Right. You know? So when you're, now when we're talking licensing here, um, you're mentioning it, bringing it to somebody. Uh, I presume you're talking about manufacturers or brands. Yeah. You're talking so who, about. Yeah. Who are the people that you're actually like, who do you try and license to? Who are those uh, people? What are those uh, brackets? Initially people Inventors always think big and they shouldn't think big. Meaning, you know, if I've got a hardware tool, I want to take it to the biggest brand like a Ryobi or a Stanley or, or a Milwaukee. But the bigger the brand, the harder it is to penetrate. Yeah, maybe focus Absolutely. maybe focus on one of those smaller tool emerging brands that has a lot more hip and a lot more excitement and, and they're open to innovation. So don't think you've got to go to the big name brand. At the same time, the big name brands generally have all the space on the shelf. They have control of that space. They've been there for years and they're the ones that can get into Home Depot and Lowe's if you have the home run product. So right. you got to find the right people for the right industry. The other key thing I've always found over the years is, is niche markets obviously means small and different specialty. Um, if you've got a product for cleaning, you know, don't you don't have to go to Bed Bath & Beyond with your product. Go to a, a janitor supply company who supplies, you know, the janitors of the world or the plumbers or whatever and sells directly to them or a snap-on tools or something like that. There's a whole market there for niche innovation products, you know. So you've got to find the right company for your product. You don't necessarily have to think big brands. Uh, starting small, it, it's absolutely critical, especially as a startup. Um, most most of our listeners and almost all home-based inventors you know, they start somewhere, they start small, they start with their first, usually it's one product, it's called the one SKU product, right? One mm -hmm. item that they're trying to sell um, to the brand who will then sell it to retailers. And absolutely, one of the easiest things that you can do is start small and work your way up. We always say, look, if you can sell 500 units in a small, isolated market, then you've got a very interesting proposition, maybe to go to the mid-size players. So look at the success we had here. Now look at your distribution or your size. Look at what you could ramp it up to. And of course, then when you go to that next level, now you're proving your model to go to the big, big players. Yeah, I think you hit it right there, um, Kevin. A lot of people 
try to go straight to the big players and never sold one of their products. You know, most of failure of a product happens in that first 12 months of launching the first series of or the first phase product that you have. And, you know, when you're testing your product and you're trying to launch it out of your basement or whatever, which is where you should always start, right. and and people get their first run comes in the door, you know, from the factory, and then they sell it straight away online or whatever it may be. And that seems to be obviously the most common way to do it, which is fine. But the problem is, you know, you've tested your product by yourself or with a couple of friends usually, and you think you know all the problems with it. You will never know the problems until you sell 100 or 200 of them to different people that aren't you or your or your mum and dad. And, and after six months, you'll work, work out all of the problems, right? So, Yeah, and that, perfect- that's where it comes very attractive, obviously, if you can iron out those kinks, you prove your model, you start selling 200, then 500, then 1,000, you're showing an incredible growth yeah. success rate, right? right. And, and that, that, I think, when you're mentioning the big players, that's always been one of their yeah. major hurdles. And, and yeah, what, you, what's the point, right, to rush to the big player uh, before you've proven yourself as well, before you've ironed out those kinks? Yeah. And, you know, the big thing now is you've got reviews. Reviews is the number one thing people look at. So if you sell on Amazon or if you sell anywhere on Etsy, it doesn't matter where you sell your product. But if you sell on Amazon and you sell 100 units and there's a problem with it and you get, you know, 20 bad reviews, your product is dead. It is not going to go anywhere because even though you might have had one problem that you could have easily fixed, you rush it to market without fixing it, you just killed yourself. If you release that product and you get 25-star reviews, that is a perfect starting point. Meaning, keep going. You know, if you can go to a retailer or a big brand and say, "Look, I'm going to grow out of my basement. I've sold 500 of these, but look, I've got four-star rating. I need someone to take it to that next level." You will get a meeting every time because you have very done, interesting. Yeah, you have taken that product a lot further than than the thousand other inventors who are dreaming and haven't done a thing. Because you've invested your money and proven it out. You've taken that stress off that brand. They would have had to do that same thing. And you've taken all that risk from them. So that's the ultimate goal there. If you can launch, do it small, and then take it to the big guys. That's what we've always said. Always always comes down to production, right? Um, And I think this is a a very interesting topic when we're talking about licensing in particular, because you mentioned one of kind of the minimum bars is um, a prototype. And realistically speaking, that may get you into the licensing meeting, but you're not going to go to become a big time product until people see those reviews. Right. And that requires essentially bridging the gap between your finished product or your your, your pre-production prototype or whatever else to uh, to to actual manufacturing, uh, yeah. and that's where I guess I think it's important to to explain kind of a, a distinction um, here between manufacturing and licensing, because those are kind of two different fields. One essentially you're producing yourself; the other one you're licensing to a company to for them essentially to produce your technology. Right? Correct. Yeah. So you're going, um, again, you could spend really the littlest amount of money you can and do a basic prototype, take it to a company. The problem is the company then has to do the two years of R&D, getting it perfected and spending all that money to find out even if it's going to actually work. So most licensing deals when they're signed actually fail to, to advance all the way through. Uh, well, I guess especially if they're signed premature of the product actually being premature developed. Right? Again, yeah. you go back to if an inventor really puts money behind it and does all the R&D and, and tweaks it and perfects the, the prototype and the product first, you're going to just 
have a lot higher success rate because it's ready for manufacturing then for large scale manufacturing. Because even, you know, I've done, I've felt, I've done this mistake myself where you go into invest $50,000 of tooling, you pump out, you know, a thousand. It's like, Oh no, here's a, here's a problem. I've got to retool it up again and, and change that whole tool around and spend another 10 grand. You know, this, this is the kind of stuff that a company is going to have to do with your product, you know? So the further you take it, the higher the chances you're going to be, you know? Yeah. And you know, something we've always said too, with, with development is you're going to have a, a lot easier time raising a small seed round or friends and family round or whatever else to get, let's say from your rough prototype to a quality pre-production, like ready to go professionally prototype, then you will trying to sell some absolute long shot um, licensing deal with a company that may or may take the license to deal and never run with it. Right. It may just sit on their shelves for the two year. And by then, uh, you know, it, it, it's quite possible that your product value has, has been marginalized or competitors have come in or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's interesting you bring up that point. It's like the closer that you can get to those reviews, the better. Right. <laughs> And uh, I, I think that's one of those things that um, it, it's difficult because we've, we've lived in a history where you do hear those occasional lottery winning success stories from the 1970s where somebody comes up with a great patent and all of a sudden it's getting you know, royalty checks for millions of dollars. But that's simply not the way products are done anymore. It's no. all about how, what have you sold and how have your customers appreciated that, that, that value that you've given them through your product. Then figure out how to scale to these mega markets that that you know eventually are out there yeah I, I recently um you know i speak to a lot of heads of innovation for companies who do licensing you know through through make 48 i've had the the luck to meet these these people the average licensing deal and royalty check on an average product like i'm talking about not low not high just the average price is between 20 to thirty thousand dollars royalty checks per year on a on a good average product so that's not big money, you know. Inventors think that they're going to make a million dollars, like you say. That doesn't. That that's, you're better off going to, to buy the lotto ticket, you know. So don't expect too much. And with licensing, most people when they license a product, they have one good invention and they license it. Very rarely can you come up with a new idea every every six months. So what that tells me is that, and I'm a big believer of just keep your day job. Just keep your job, and if you make a licensing deal and you can make income on the side, that's a great passive income. Yes, you know. Yes, and, and th- then you know if you really think that this is something you need to jump into, wait until you're in the business of it. It's I think it's the same whether you're going into manufacturing or whether you're going into you know taking the long shot and hoping to get a great licensing deal. Uh, but in either play, certainly if, don't quit your day job until you've got it to a point where you think, okay, you know what? We've either got big investors on board or big buyers are now chomping at the bit. Now I really need yeah. to dedicate 50, 60, 70 hours a week to this and nothing else. And I'm distracted with work. Okay. Now I'm ready to pull the trigger. Yeah. Then make that change. Yeah. But ideally not, not beforehand. Yeah. I'll tell you another thing, uh, Kevin, with, with licensing and I see in, inventors get really uptight about this is when you go and you're going to, you're negotiating your, your product a lot of inventors get upset when the license company doesn't take their name of the product because a lot uh, of people right. a lot of people like to name their product but then they want to see that name attached to it forever that doesn't usually work because there's two very powerful things with a product there is the the, the patent that goes with it and then there is the name that's branded with the product 
But if you go to a company, they're going to always brand their own brand. They're not, they're not going to give you both of those things, right? Because a brand is very powerful. A brand is, to me, is a lot more powerful than a patent. And that's that's when we can trademark something, right? And you can protect a trademark a lot easier than a patent. But you think of brands. Brands can last forever and ever and ever. And, and innovation can rotate through those brands. So Absolutely. they'll often use their own trademark brands to grow and use your innovation to go under that umbrella. So again, inventors get really uptight and, and think that they're getting ripped off because the, the company is going to change the name of their product. And that is completely <laughs> right. normal. Well, you know? I, I, so from the licensing deals that you've seen, um, how much rights do the inventors have once they sign that deal for their product? Things like the name, even the design itself. Um, usually do- the pat- usually the patent is the only thing they've got. A patent right. or a patent pending is the only thing they can license. Uh, if you don't have that and you go to a company, you got nothing, that company has all the right in the world to just take your product and run with it <laughs> because you didn't get off your bum and, and do your your own, you know, protection. So the patent is the only thing. Um, you can have an exclusive license where you cannot sell that ever again and that company has an exclusive right, but they've got to usually hit a minimum threshold of selling so many units per year, you know, and that keeps them the exclusive right. But then you've got, um, you can have a non-exclusive license. For instance, you might go to someone and say, hey, I want to license this product to you and you can put it in Home Depot and Lowe's and, and, and Menards, for example. But then I'm going to take the same product and take it to a completely different industry for a, another partner. And that's a negotiation you're going to have to have. Right, um, right. And that splits your risk between two companies, you know? Right. But usually if a company is going to spend money and market the product, uh, they're going to want to have it exclusively. Yeah, and I think for the better the better deals that that I've seen in any case, and the the better wins. Um, first of all, usually they've been in production at least for a little bit. They have some users, and second of all, the ones that I've seen that they really want to scale up with them, they demand exclusives at least for a certain amount of years, three years, five years, depending on how much money they plan to put into marketing and whatever else to actually make it a a big hit product. I think so, because every product needs marketing. And when you're talking about brand new innovation, no one's ever seen brand new innovation before. So if you've got a brand new invention, someone has to spend big money to tell the world it exists, right? And why, and why they should buy it, right? Of and course. why they should buy it. And that's, a, that's the most expensive part. That's what takes millions of dollars when you think about it. I've got a good friend who's uh, big in the toy industry. And she said, whenever they launch a brand new toy, they have to spend $2 million on marketing right. to give it... A, to give it the right shot of having a chance to succeed anything less. And they just didn't spend enough, but they think 2 million is the, the, the amount they have to spend. Right. So if you've, if you've gone out and licensed to two or three different companies and only one person is going to spend their money and take the risk, the other two are going to be like, this is great. Someone else is marking this product for us. <laughs> right. Right. And straight away, the deals just don't work because that happens. They, they look at each other and like, well, I'm doing to spend all the money, you know, and that's why exclusives are usually the only way it works. Generally. Right, right. And and I think there's a lot of value to the exclusive for the inventor because realistically speaking, the hopefully they're negotiating along the lines with an exclusive. Like, what are they actually? What is the inventor going to get in exchange for the exclusive? And generally, it's got to be favorable. Otherwise, why would the inventor want to sign such an exclusive? You know, such a deal. Right. It's a minimum. It's usually a minimum per year royalty check. No matter how a minimum, no matter how if they sold if they sold zero, you still get that check. Um, 
The problem is there's always a clause in there and it's fair for the other person too. So there's always a clause that if they put it on the shelf and this whole product's a failure and just doesn't sell for whatever reason, and that's very common too, then everyone can walk away eventually, you know, because you can't hold someone to the fire if the products are dud. You know, right. no one's no one's winning in that situation. And, and I, they've taken some risk too. So it's not like they're, it's not like it's a one-sided deal because they put, you've put money into R&D. Maybe you've gone to production, you know, you, you've put your money and you've got to the point where they have interest. But now they're also putting in probably a similar, possibly even more money into launching that. So yeah, I would imagine that would be a reasonable kind of course of action if it, if it doesn't actually yeah. fan out for now, either party. The company is definitely putting in the bigger money, usually. Um, our last cal- calculation on a product we did, you know, the tooling was expensive, but the tooling ended up to be 15% of the total budget of what we needed. Right. And that's where a lot of, a lot of people think, well, if I just make my product, it ships to me from overseas or local, it sits in a warehouse and, and they're like, okay, it's ready for sale, but no, not, nothing's been sold because you're just beginning the journey. Right. Well, and, and that comes back to what you were saying about the, the bigger you go the more difficult it is because if you are going to those national brands, they have to spend on national campaigns. Yeah. So that's where if you go to a small regional brand, maybe they would look at it as a much more reasonable investment as a much smaller investment. And that could prove your model for, you know, a future deal, maybe of much, much greater size, maybe that's not in their region or maybe to, you know, partnership associations of theirs or whatnot. But the key is getting in the door, proving that tracker. Yeah, everything really seems to keep coming back to, you know, the more you can prove, the higher the chance of success, the better deal you're going to get and so on, right? I think it's like anything in life, right? Um, no different than getting a job. If you've got experience and you've done it before, you're going to be, you're going to have a better chance of someone with zero experience. Yes. Um, no, I'm a big believer. For inventors that spend 10000 20000 on their product, it shows me they got skin in the game. And that's always a good thing, you know? So, um you have to do it. You have to spend money somewhere and you have to build something sometime. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's a big, uh, uh, that's a big topic obviously and, and money and how you go through the rounds to actually get to it. But, you know, looking at the hopeful long shot lottery ticket is really not the way to win. It's not going to happen. I, I have, I don't think I can think of a time that I've ever seen somebody come with just some rough idea, rough design, some basic, uh, maybe even just a basic provisional patent or something like that. And all of a sudden be making millions in royalty checks. It never happens. There's a couple of stories, you know, you've heard in the past many years ago, maybe that it happened. And even those, you know, riddled with some difficulties, but realistically it's that, you know, pushing it forward, raising investment if you need to, to get it to a point that you actually have a sellable product or are even doing some small sales, then looking at licensing. And I think that's a big uh, misunderstanding in the, in the product industry. When you talk about the term licensing, people think, oh, license the idea. No, they're not licensing the idea. They're licensing something that has been successful in the market that has some patent protection and some proven technology track record Yep, units out there, right? That's what they're licensing. They're not licensing the idea. Although the, uh, the idea is the in- initial goal, absolutely. But that's not what they're licensing at the end of the day. Yeah, an idea is in your head. An idea doesn't mean anything. A prototype is exactly the idea that you've built that was in your head. Right. Right. And um, even if you haven't gone to market, that's fine. Your prototype must be refined to make an old beat up prototype with a few bits of cardboard. It's not going to get you very far to 3D print it and have it working. That's fine to 3D print it and have an SLA, which is a refined, beautiful 3D print of beautiful plastic. Have it painted 
get decal stickers professionally made, put it in a, an attractive box. Now that's what I'm talking about. Right. That, right. you know, refining it so a buyer can pull it out or the person you're trying to license it to, the brand can pull out a box and like, I get how this works. This is, works really well. That's even fine, you know? Well, like and sometimes some, they'll, they'll yeah. probably want you to leave the samples too. Say, great, yeah. you know, I, I, I want to, we're going to take three of these and play around with them for a month. We'll get back to you. <laughs> and that's, you know, you, you've got to be ready, to, right? Yeah, yeah, they have to do that. So that goes to go back again to when you make your product. Yeah, you got to get a price and make half a dozen of them because that will happen where you're going to give them to somebody or ship them to somebody. Um. Yeah, we, we regularly have clients, you know, they'll have one because, you know, they've been building up to this one prototype and it's ready to go near manufacture, maybe even a manufactured sample or whatnot. Um, and there's no way that you're going to afford to do five more. So I, I've seen it quite a few times where they'll say, okay, look, I'll give this to you for a month, but A, please don't break it. B, I'm going to need that back. And you know, yeah. that, that that's our one and only for our marketing materials for this and that. And you know what, that yeah. that is one way to do it. But realistically speaking, if you've gone that far and you've got some serious folks, um, you may want to have these products sitting in two, three, four different hands of decision makers yeah. While you're trying to, you also are trying to vet the best, best person. I think that's also important to keep in mind too. This isn't a one-way street, right? Mm -hmm. They are also competing in a way for your business because they, the reason they would be signing an exclusive is because they think it's going to be a big product and something that they're going to be able to outsell mm -hmm. their, you know, competitive retail outlet or manufacturer or whatever else is on that. So I think it's important for inventors also to remember that, um, you know, not forget all that you've put into it and the value that you've created and understand that it is a, it really is, although they are, you know, they're, they're the big fish, it is still a two-sided negotiation. And, and yeah. you, you by no means should just be giving away the lot uh, on the first deal that comes across across your table uh, yeah. if you don't like what you see. So, Kevin, a, a really good success I've had over the years is, you know, where do you find these people? How do you know who's trusted? You know, some companies are pretty ruthless. Some are real friendly. You just don't really know. You can't really tell that from the internet, right? Unless you Google them and find a bad story. But think of trade shows. Go to the trade show that makes sense for your product category and walk the floor. And there you're going to see all the big brands. They all have to sell their goods anyway as well, right? So they're going to be there. And just walk into a booth and ask to, ask to speak to the head of innovation. They'll often be at the trade show or they'll, they'll, they'll pass on a name. And just question them. Don't take your prototype. Don't show them anything. And just get a feel for the company. And if it's a smaller company, is, is it a family company that's really friendly, that wants to chat to you? Or is it a big company that you're just a number, you know, because finding the right partner will be a, will be a big deal for you, you know, for not just the deal, but to have a nice working relationship is so much nicer than, than having a ruthless contract that that's what they go, go by. So you must find the right company and be, be happy with them too. You know? oh, that, that's great insight. Uh, what are uh, some of your favorite trade shows? I know a lot of our clients, pretty much every year, we've got a number of clients that are sh either showcasing or just walking the floor at CES. That's yeah. always been a huge one for us. It's always a big deadline come you know January every year. We've got to get those prototypes or get those production samples out or even some production units by then. It's always been a huge deadline in pretty much in the industry across. Right. Um, what are some of the other trade shows that uh, that you like? You know, personally, I've always been in the hardware slash gardening, that kind of thing. Um, even farming, you know, my, my big passion is farming. Um, but the National Hardware Show, I've, I've been to that show pretty much since I've been to America, you know. Uh, as a vendor, you know, I had I was selling my products there, and of course, we obviously display Make Forty Eight there now. But um, the National Hardware Show is the coolest one I go to. Um, housewares is fun, but you know, it's very much a lot of the same stuff. 
but um, CES is a very a very techy show, so you see some pretty elaborate stuff, as you know. Yeah, that's right, where more right. of our electronic products usually go. It's all electronic, so it's really good to go see eye candy there. Um, you know, to me, it's not my passion, so I, a lot of that stuff, you know, the the technical side of it, I just don't understand a lot of it. But it's fun. It's all consumer stuff you're going to buy for your house eventually. But um, yeah, I still think the National Hardware Show is one of the best ones. You yeah, can it's get. a great show. Absolutely. Tom, really appreciate the advice. You know, just as a quick recap here, um, you know, first and foremost, the further you go with your product, the higher degree it is to, to license it. Second, think about your protection, of course, uh, on the product, right? And then third, start small. Uh, you know, approach the manufacturers that you like or the brands that you like, uh, you know, on the smaller end, maybe in the hopes to get to the the, the big fish that you eventually want to get to. Um, think of it as a stepping stone, as a, as a growth of your product, as opposed to going for the the big players right out of the gate. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's, that's a great summary of uh, licensing. Tom, really appreciate you having on the show. We'll have to have you on again. I know you've got a whole library, a whole wealth of information uh, in regards to the product industry in particular. Um, where should everyone go uh, to check out the Make 48 TV show? What's the easiest way to get access to it? Or what are some of the mediums uh, to check out what's going on with Make 48? And even maybe a lot of the inventors and product developers on the show um, maybe should be looking into it to actually apply to be one of the one of the teams or, or individuals that uh, that actually come on to, to compete. I, I totally agree, Kevin. Uh, you can get all that information at our website. So make48.com. The, you've got the episodes you can watch that'll take you to the pbs.org to watch the episodes uh google it on amazon prime on your on your smart tv or your amazon tv and and you can find us there um but yeah there's a wealth of information on our website about brands that we use and have used over the years and trust um and that's yeah you can you can apply online you can do it all right there we will soon be announcing our 10 city series so um, there's 10 cities there some are big some are small and if you're in that city, we want you guys to apply. So, be and what what types that. of people can can apply to be on the show? Like, what type of people are you looking for? Okay, so the this is the best part about Make Forty Eight. It's for everybody. You don't have to have any experience at all because you're not physically building anything yourself. So we get a lot of families, a lot of friends, school friends, whatever. Um, we've had grandparents. We've had top design firms apply. Corporations. You know, if you're in a big corporation and you want to get your buddies together to put a team, that's fine too. But it's basically everyone and anyone. Uh, the only thing we must require is that if you do have some minors uh, on your team, you got to have at least one person over the age of 18 to be your team captain. So that's the only that's the only deal. Uh, sounds great. Make48.com. Tom, really appreciate you being on the show and taking your time to, uh, to come out and give us this valuable insight. Much appreciated. Thanks. Thank you, Thanks. Kevin, for what you're doing. Appreciate it, buddy. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com that's m-a-k-o design.com for a free consultation from one of maco designs for design studios from coast to coast thanks for listening and see you next time